And now, coming to you live from Chicago, Illinois, Perth, Western Australia, and the wilds of Wisconsin, it's Jonathan Strand, <laughs> Gary K. Wolf, and very special guest Mary Rickert on the Coot Street Podcast! Mary Rickert is a He doesn't get enough applause for this. So. Oh, wow. Yay! I think I get just enough applause for that, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Mary. It's fantastic to have you back with us. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here. The last time you were on the podcast, we had one of the rare scoops that the Good Street podcast had, because I think that was the first public announcement that your novel was going to come out from um, source books, uh, and now, right, it's, now it's now right. it's coming out within days. Yeah, it's coming out on Tuesday. Tuesday, May six. Yeah, and you're right. I think the last time we talked. I had uh, was just announcing it. It all went yeah. kind of quickly, actually. Yeah. It, it seems to have, and, and Chris Barzak yeah, was I on. Found, I found out um, when I was at Wiscon that it was going to get published. So it's like less, a little less than a year, and it's out. And this is this makes this a very big week for you because uh, you've also got a major novella up on Tor.com as of when? A couple of days ago. Um, I think it was yesterday, or maybe yesterday. a couple of days ago. And um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's up. It's the Mothers of Voorsville, and um, it's also available like as an ebook if anyone wants to read it that way. So um, yeah, so, I, th I think that's just kind of coincidence of timing. I mean, I think once once they. I think once Tor became aware, you know, of the the novel date, mm -hmm. they actually um, had the novella come out just a little sooner because it was going to be the exact same day. So um, they changed it, you know, by a week or so. But other than that, it's pretty much a coincidence of timing. That novella is pretty old. Oh, it is? I mean, yeah, that was one of my uh, part of one of my first novel attempts. <laughs> and... Um, I had written some novelettes or tried to write a novel at some point, And that was like a chunk of it. And Liz Gorinsky had seen that and she remembered it. And she, she actually came back to me and said, you know, I'd really like to do something with that. And then even then, you know, it kind of took a while for it to get up. Sorry, you go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I started reading it this afternoon because I only learned about it today, and I'm finding it very hypnotic. The first thing I notice about it, and I don't usually notice this about online publications, but I think these illustrations by Wesley oh, Ellsberg are just terrific. They are amazing. They are amazing. And, and um, Wesley did such an excellent job of uh, there's something in that, in the, the energy of that artwork that I think I I really enjoy and I hope is you know reflective of some energy in that novella. I think they're great. I I love them. Yeah, well, I should say that. I mean, in, in fairness, Irene Gallo seems to always do an extraordinary job in arranging artwork for Tor.com stories, and this stuff just looks wonderful. Yeah. Well, arrange, yeah. yeah, arranging artwork that matches the stories because. Uh, these are the, the sort of fluid lines and the kind of, uh, in some ways, retro illustration. It's, you know what it reminds me of? And the reason I think, the reason I think it's capturing the story uh, so far, which looks like a very weird story, 
uh, is that it reminded me of those illustrations that Joe Mugnani used to do for Ray Bradbury stories right. in books like The October Country. Very, not minimalist, but very sort of fluid line drawings that seem to capture the some visual equivalent of the voice of the story, if that makes any sense. It does to me. I mean, I, that's one of the things I really appreciate in that artwork is I feel like it is, it's, it's, it goes beyond just a picture. You know, it, it, it has a feeling of, of energy and voice to it. it you know, at least mm-hmm. to someone like me who's, who's in more of a voice person. And, but I feel like I can see it in that work. So I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let, let's take a step back a minute if we can. Tell us sort of how the last couple of years writing-wise have been for you because when I look at it, it's, you know, sort of you had a long string of stories starting from the sort of late 90s or you know, the end of the 90s through the 2000s coming out. And then I guess the story you wrote for Under My Hat, Burning Castles in 2012, yeah. was the last thing to come out until this week. So what happened? Well, um, I just, well, this is such a long story. First of all, I went, I did go to school and I got an MFA. Congratulations. So I was in a program, a graduate school program for two years. And um, while in that program, I was writing my novel. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's basically basically what happened and backing up a little bit you know i got to a point well so many i got to, i got to one place from so many different things in my life directing me that way or you know or where i felt that that was what i wanted to do i started to feel like i was um, a little bit imitating myself in my own short stories there was something that that hopefully nothing that was published, but the stuff that I was writing at home started to feel a little less um, true, you know, a little, and by true, I don't, I always mean it in that sort of other definition, you know, of of meaning like not from life experience, but from something really deep inside of myself, almost that I was starting to just, um, I felt like I, I needed to shake things up a little bit and I felt like I had a, needed to get in touch with what I wanted to say now. And then at the same time as that happened, I had, you know, another one of my novel attempts that I had worked on for about nine years um, turned out to be not a success. Nothing happened with it. And I thought, all right, you know, I'm not a novelist. And it's okay. I've been working on this. I've been working on trying to write novels since I was 30, officially. You know, so I've been trying to work, write novels for like, I was at that point, it was 20-some years. And I was like, you know, it's okay. Be a short story writer, which I love. But then I thought, you know, if I'm going to do that, I, I need something else in my life. And I'd like to teach writing. And I thought that would be a really nice life. Mm-hmm. I I would really and I I still think it could be a nice life you know to teach writing and then write short stories and um, I felt really good about the decision and I felt I was you know starting to make that happen and then, and then you had asked for a story about a witch and I I mean this was like really really close to me deciding that you know I didn't have to be a novelist and it was okay to quit at this point you know it wasn't a bad choice and I sat down and started writing the story and um at a certain point I just I just kind of looked at it and thought 
I think this could be a novel. Uh, and then I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, just, I said, you know, just do it. You know, just go ahead. You can quit anytime you want. Just have a good time and, and see what happens. Um, and that's what I did. So in the meantime, I had applied to the Vermont College of Fine Arts, and I was accepted into that program. So I decided, well, I'm going to work on my novel while I'm in the program. And that's about catches you up. Okay. So that took a lot of time. Well, one of the things, uh, people people who've listened to our podcast have probably heard, me at least, Jonathan being much more um, tasteful, I guess, have heard me say things about MFA programs. And I know we, you and Mary, you and I talked about going into an MFA program because uh, a number of MFA programs will look at the kind of fiction you'd been doing and think this is just too weird for the normal MFA program. But you apparently had no problems with that. Apparently they accepted your fiction the way it was. Yeah, I don't think I had. I, um, well, I want to be, be really... You know, it was a wonderful experience for me, and it really was a wonderful program, and um, I had no problem. Um, I think there are people, you know, like in any community where you assemble um, writers, <laughs> and there there are those who've risen above what I call, you know, literary bigotry, and those who are in it. And... I think I've gotten really good at sort of sensing that literary bigotry, and I don't have much top. Well, I don't have any tolerance for it, and I'm I'm very careful to not put myself in a position where um, somebody like that is is going to be somebody whose opinion matters to me. That's very wise, I think. Um, yeah. Because. <laughs> You must have, because I, we, we've talked to some other people, uh, well, I mean, Nettie Okorofor is one that we had on the podcast recently, who would go into a, um, well, she didn't go into her program with this, but, you know, you were going into an MFA program almost certainly having won or been nominated for more awards than any of your instructors. Um, <laughs> and I think that's true. It's, it, it, it's just, it, it's partly the nature of our field. We give out more awards than mainstream literature. Yeah, is. yeah. Uh, uh, but but nevertheless, there is that sense that you've already been rewarded by your readers when you're going into a program where you're being evaluated by other, well, or at least coached, taught, whatever, by other writers. Um, and, I, and one of the things I've, I've, I've seen happen with, with, uh, with some accomplished writers going into MFA programs is just there's this sense of um, not quite envy, uh, maybe contract envy, maybe envy over somebody who actually has published novels with mainstream publishers, gotten advances for them, gotten paid for what they've done. I guess what I'm getting at is that your experience, and we're, we're giving a plug for the Vermont College of Fine Arts, which I know nothing about, hmm. uh, your experience was actually pretty useful for you, and you did come out of it, indirectly or not, with a novel. Yeah, it was an amazing experience for me. I... Um... I'll just say real quickly, it's a it's a mentorship program, so it's a low residency program, and I was on campus, you know, maybe around two weeks, about every six months. And while on campus, I got to hear, you know, all kinds of lectures and readings, and I and I did, um, I was in workshop with other students who range in ages and experience widely, 
because it is a low residency program. And then um, the rest of the time I wrote at home and I sent, you know, packets to my my mentors. And um, those packets were composed of my fiction writing and then also critical writing, which I found I, I just loved doing. And it was something I, I mean, it was very intimidating to me when I applied to the program. I had no idea what it, how, how to do something like that. And I came out, I don't think it's, um, I don't think I have like, you know, like a PhD critical thesis kind of ability, but I, mm. I strengthen my muscles, you know, in that regard, as far as um, I think I have my critical abilities as a writer I'm greatly improved. And I completely enjoyed engaging with that side of writing and learning how to talk about it that way. It was very powerful. I mean, I mean, like, I loved it. When I got out of the program, I actually started looking in PhD programs, and then I thought, no, you're getting off track here. <laughs> but I, I, I quite enjoyed the work. And, um, and I would say that Vermont College has had a, it's just a very, it's a very supportive environment. I worked with some amazing people. And, um, yeah, it was it, it 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 was great, and there's you know there was a lot of people from different backgrounds, and um, who also there were people there who, well, I don't know if I shouldn't. There there were, I wasn't the only one there from the kind of background I had, but I but other people have to tell their own stories. Okay. Okay. The out of it that you mentioned. Interestingly enough, that you were afraid that you'd started writing M. Rickard stories. Is that kind of a fair way of putting it? That, um, that you knew what the stories were like, and you, you, well, you said self-educative. Yeah, I was. It isn't really that. I mean, I think it's okay. I mean, I think it's important, in fact, to know. Uh, you, know, I think I feel happy that I'm at a point in my life where I have sort of you know, established a sense of my own identity as a writer. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between that and and producing work that just feels like it's it's just not coming from that that deeper place or that it just starts to feel oh. like now I do this and um you know, it's I, hard I, to describe. I get the sense of it, but you know, I know you, there's something tonal. There's something that happens when you're reading it too, where you go, "Okay, this isn't this isn't quite there." One of the things that I'm getting at with this was um, that when your your first stories appeared. Uh, it was it was one of these lovely mysteries that people like to have. You're picking up a copy of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and here's a terrific story with an enigmatic one initial name, M. Rickert. And then that becomes a thing. It becomes, I mean, after people knew who you were. Uh, and the novel is now got Mary Rickert's name on it. Why is that? I know, that's so funny because that's like, everybody's very curious about that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same thing. Well, I felt like I, I, first of all, I felt like it had gotten kind of silly. You know, I felt that um, 
I felt that the people who knew my work knew how I was. So, you know, a lot of times it'd be by, by M. Rick, Ricker, you know, and they'd be like, we talked to Mary, you know, and I was just like, well, this is just, it's just started to seem kind of silly. And then on this other other area of my thinking, I've, I had um, planned, okay, I'm going to be, my novels will be Mary Ricker, and then my short stories will be M. Ricker. And then that started to seem really silly. <laughs> so... I just decided, you know, just, you know, just, I'm Mary Rickard, and to just go with it, and it's, it's all sort of, it's all sort of silly. On this other level, it, it's kind of working for me. I feel like it's sort of marking, you know, this is a new, a new time in my writing, and this is, um, yeah, I, I feel like it does sort of mark a passage, but um, I don't know where I'll go next. <laughs> Well, is it because of some change in the kind of thing you're writing, do you feel? Well, you know, initially initially I did. I thought that the, I did, and I've talked, I've said to quite a few people that the novel, you know, was lighter in tone and various um, things, which I think is true on one level, but the more I think about it and I think about my short stories, I mean, it's definitely brighter in tone, and I definitely was working with the idea of, how much light can I shine on darkness? Because when you once you read the novel and if you think about it, there's actually quite a bit of darkness in there, and I put a lot of light on it. And so the feedback I'm getting from people uninitiated, you know, who don't know my short stories, it's been interesting because generally people seem to be responding to the um, to the brightness and the tone, but uh, in a way, you know, I look at it and I go, you know, if you crammed all this into a short story and it could be done, it could be, um, mm -hmm. people would, there's a, except, well, there's, um, a really good chance people would find it a lot darker, but there's just more space for light in a novel. And so, you know, and finally I am writing a novel and I hope to write another novel and I, I really enjoy it. So in a way it does mark a change, but I don't feel like I'm leaving. It's not that I'm leaving anything. It's just a change in, you know, what I'm doing with the light and the dark. Do you feel that writing The Memory Garden in some way showed you a way through how to write a novel? Absolutely. And I have to give props to um, my one of my first mentors was Jocelyn Jackson, and um, she responded. She was so, I mean, I would get you know pages and pages and pages of you know engagement with what I was doing, and and at one point she said. Um, something like, you know, you put a lot in this sentence. Why don't you, you know, break it open and make a paragraph out of it? And bam, there it was. You know, I'd been trying to write, it seemed, I feel like, how could I have not figured that out on my own? But every, I, I mean, really, and it wasn't like I wasn't trying. I was really trying to write novels. And every time they'd end up really short, you know, I just couldn't <laughs> make the length. But the ideas seemed big enough. Everything seemed... So then what I would do is I'd say, well, you just, you, you know, essentially, I mean, I tried to be more artful about it, but I thought the solution would be to, to stuff some more stuff in there. And then it would get this really, oh, you know, ugly, um, 
structure and the form was wrong and it just wasn't right. And then Jocelyn said that and it just it changed everything. I just start, I started looking at these sentences and I used to call them egg sentences, you know. I'd open mm-hmm. them up and there was all this other stuff inside and I really enjoyed it. And I didn't feel like I was losing, you know, the, the things I say or the way I say them. I was just opening them up more. And of course, wow, you know, that we're, we're kind of works perfectly in a story where a lot is set in a garden. You know, we're talking about blooming and opening up. So, yeah, I, and now I feel like I know the next one, you know, at some point I'm going to be, oh, my gosh, I'm stuck. I'm not sure what I'm doing. But I kind of think I do know how to write novels now, and I'm really happy. <laughs> it's something I really wanted to do, and it's something I worked at for a long time. Well, I guess one of the most unfair questions we could ask, sorry, Gary, but it's probably germane at some point to ask it is, how would you describe the memory garden to someone who hasn't come across it yet? Who hasn't come across it yet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the book comes out like tomorrow, this week. Do you mean somebody who does or doesn't know M. Rickard's work? Well, either way. I mean, basically someone who's not read the novel. Okay. Well, one thing I want to Okay, one thing I want to be sure to say at some point, and I have to get it out in a few other places, is because on the internet it's being tagged, you know, on certain of the, you know, online um, buying sites as horror. Mm-hmm. And if you buy it for horror, you're going to be really disappointed. Cause really? It's not. Yeah, like some of the, you know, like the, I don't know, I don't know. It's really hard to change those tags, you know. I, I'm, but yeah, you know what I mean. The mm-hmm. little, well, there's. Little, there's a horrible secret in, in it, I guess. <laughs> well, there is. I mean, that's the point. You know, that's the part where I was saying, you know, if you really, really think about, I mean, if you, or you don't even have to think about it that hard. You know, there there's actually quite a bit of darkness in it. But I think if somebody's looking for horror and they know what horror is and if they, you know, are familiar with, how, how you know, some of my darker work and they come for that, you know, it's going to set up all kinds of anticipation and that's not going to be met. It's just going to be confusing. You know, when I when I generally talk to people about it, I say it's a story of um, three old friends who get together after the terrible thing that happened um, that broke them apart, you know, about 60 years ago. And it's the story of a, a young woman finding her, her own power in the world so i'll say I, that's how i generally say it i'm not so good at that elevator pitch <laughs> thing. That, that um it's interesting the horror thing is happening to you because um a friend of ours who we have had on the podcast and who whose work has some similarities to to, to your work in the memory garden is graham joyce and graham was yeah. for the yeah. first what 10 years of his career yeah. classified as a horror yeah. writer yeah uh, and I think it's I, I think he's past that now, but it's it's still uh, it's, it's, it's yeah labels can hang on you I guess. Yeah, and I don't I don't mind the labels. Um, it's interesting because with the memory garden, I've seen it tagged as women's fiction, horror, ghost stories. Oh, was there was something, and I was like, well, that's a new one, mystery. <laughs> it's all, you know, and that's like, it's okay. I don't, you know, whatever. But um, the unfortunate thing is where somebody comes looking for that, and 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 then is and they're disappointed. But you know, if they just explore a little bit more, I think it becomes clear. 
I wonder but I if, did. I oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I wonder if what romance readers will make of it because source books has said that they want to appeal to to women readers in particular and to book clubs and so forth and so on. And there is uh, this is not a word I used. Uh, Mary, you've seen my you've seen one of my reviews. I've written another review of it since then. The word I would not use in a review because I just don't like to use this word ever anywhere is there's a sweetness to it. There's there's a sweetness to the relationship between Bay and Nan that is just very affirming in 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 the face of all this darkness. Um, and in a way, that's the romance of the story. I think. Well, I think so too. I thought I did that's, read your review, and I liked where you said, you know, it's a lo- it's a love story. It's not a um, you know, it's but it's a love story. I mean, I think it's a love story about friendships, and it's a love story about mothers and daughters, and it's a love story about self. It's just not, uh, you know, a sexual love story. And um, I think it's, yeah. I mean, we have all kinds of love in the world, <laughs> you know. And I think it was, it's for me, it was very pleasant to be in that atmosphere. And it, and I I'm I'm personally comfortable with it being called sweet. And as far as um, readers, you know, well, we'll see. <laughs> well, not all of it. I don't want to. I don't want people coming away thinking that this is um, the Sweet Valley High kind of thing. What I meant is there's a genuine sweetness in that relationship and in the friendships between the three older ladies. Um, yeah. So, so there, it's 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 a novel which will both surprise, I think, and and not surprise readers of M. Rickard stories because a lot of the stories that you've written about children in the past, well, bad things happen to children, in a lot of your stories. I'm thinking of uh-huh. the Chamber Route or or Map of Dreams starts off with a woman's kid being murdered in New York City, as I recall. Uh-huh. Um, so here's a kid that survives at the end. Which is something, but there is that dip. That <laughs> You're giving away the ending. <laughs> now that's pretty clear. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're not going to kill off this kid. You can tell she's too cool. Yeah. A kid. It's a very cool kid, by the way. The characters are all wonderful in it. But there is this looming shadow over the center of the novel, which I think M. Rickard readers will recognize. I don't know what to Maybe. say to that. <laughs> <laughs> It's, well, I don't know. I thought it was a, a I, I, well, you know what I thought of it. I, th- I think it's a terrific novel. I think it will reach different audiences. And I think is partly what Jonathan was getting at in having you describe the novel to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, because I think that uh, it'll be a surprise both to M. Rickard readers and to people who've never heard of M. Rickard. Um, as a matter of fact, the other thing I thought about, and you should be thinking about this, Mary, People will read this novel and then think, oh, I'm going to go look up some of M. Rickard's short stories, and they're going to be reading about child murders and abductions, and um, it, it, the, the stories are going to be a, uh, a holiday. The stories might be a real shocker to somebody who starts off by reading this novel. Yeah, I think, you know, and that that was partly why I was going to first do the two-name things, but, you know... I mean, people like stories, and people like, I read a wide variety of stories. Um, I think that 
some people will be able to, you know, make that kind of jump. And some people say, well, you know, I like her novels, but I don't really like her short stories. And um, I'm, I think that's okay. And I, I don't think I necessarily have to do the name thing <laughs> to help them figure it out, you know. But um, usually when anyone reads something, you get some some little description of it or something first to give you a sense of what you're getting into. So, um, and, and it's not as though my short stories are widely available because they're not, you know, at this point. Um, so... <laughs> it's, maybe we don't even have to worry about well, that well no hopefully what also can happen is that that you know the any reader who picks up the memory garden and enjoys it as i think they will uh will be encouraged to seek out your other work and yes it's a different perhaps a more condensed intense experience of the kind of story you tell but i don't know that's that alien to, to anybody who will have read and enjoyed the memory garden and certainly i've always found it it's a true thing i mean writers tend to change when they if they start off with a career writing short fiction and then move to novels more the work does change uh -huh. it's a natural kind of evolutionary path in, in in writing uh you know this for some people obviously writing novels comes much more naturally but for a certain group of short story writers and i could name a string of them uh, very fine short story writers, there is that thing where you finally work out how to write a novel and then everything changes a bit thereafter. I mean, I guess that's why seeing uh, The Mothers of Oresville come out for Tor.com is interesting, even though, I, from what you're saying, it's actually an older work. So it's like, I'm going to be interested to see how having written Mem Memory Garden impacts on the short stories you're likely to write in the future when you have time to. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I had, I don't know. I, I will say that I, I have a feeling that I, I I have trouble imagining that I could write a whole novel in in the intense dark space that maybe, you know, the Mothers of Oresville would, would be described as being in because I mean that novel took me you know, and it's 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 not it's not like a really big complicated story or anything, but because of the way I write, I think it was like three years, and during that period of time, I did think how happy I was that the novel I was working on did turn out to be a place where there was, you know, a beautiful garden mm. and people I liked hanging out with and and, uh, and ghosts whose company I mostly enjoyed and didn't find terrifying. And I thought a lot during that period of time of how, you know, if I wrote a novel in such a, a in a different kind of space and I would be sharing that space for three years, um, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. <laughs> you know, I really, I, I hope that as a novelist I'll be approaching, uh, you know, fiction that matters mm. and and deals with with things that matter in life and um i think though that there may be sort of a divide between my shorter work and what i can approach in my shorter work yeah i'd always thought that there were uh, i remember when i first started reading your work and i was thinking of reading things like map of dreams which the novella, the novella won the World Fantasy Award, did it not? That was the one. Um, and no, 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 the, no. Oh, the novella was. 
the short story that won was Journey into the Kingdom, Gary, and then Map of Dreams won Best Collection. Yes, water that's right. The, Thank you. But Map of Dreams occurred to me that 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 had enough material in it for a novel. Um, the Chambered Fruit had enough material in it. Yeah. Except it would have been. I would not. I would not want to wanted anybody to stay in that space as long as it would take to deal with the actual rip repercussions of that because it's uh, it's a very disturbing story. Um, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this at all. Um, <laughs> well, you actually, Gary, had mentioned to me at some point that you thought, you know, you, you had said that you thought my short stories, that you had read a few of them thinking, you know, there's enough here to be in a novel. And I think in an odd way, you know, I think that actually helped me to to when I did sit down again and say okay I'm going to try this again you know there was a part of me that was you know the problem hasn't with my novel writing had not been that it, it wasn't in the ideas of the stories that because even my stories I think many of them could could have been novels that there was enough there that the problem was on some other level and I just had so much trouble figuring it out and so it was basically it was at the sentence level it was at the word level do you think now that you've got the memory garden written and you're working on other novels short fiction will be something you do a lot less of I don't know I really don't know you know I um, this this did happen once it happened, the the novel getting published. Mm. Um, so it's been kind of a busy year, you know. I was sure. the novel and then the novella both at the same time coming out so closely together. There was a lot of going back and forth with editors <laughs> and stuff like that. And um, I do have another novel started. I have a, another short stories in my drawer started, and I'm just really. Um, kind of you looking at this summer as being a time where I'm going to be a lot at least for me busier more um, communicating more out mm -hmm. you know sort of in the public world and I'm I'm I'll see what happens in the fall but I, sh I sure hope I'll be doing both I enjoy both but I don't, I don't know how that's all going to happen yeah. I guess I, I ask again because it's not uncommon that when someone does finally write a first novel, either they go back, I guess, to writing short fiction because it was something unusual and they haven't, it was the one thing they could work out what to do, which is doesn't sound like it's the case for you, or they then largely just move on to writing novels because they become satisfying to write in a different way. I think you know, there's a certain, I mean, you talked about spending that time with the characters in the memory garden and the locations and the experiences and how welcoming in some ways that was i guess i loved and, it i loved it and i oh, could sorry, go. Oh, no just i could see that that then becomes a primary attraction in your writing time when you're you know, when you're faced with i'm now going to sit down and write well this experience is the one that really attracts me now particularly when you've spent more than 10 years writing short fiction mm -hmm. you know being seduced by novel writing seems like a fairly natural thing from here, particularly from the way you talk about it, where it's proven ultimately to be a pleasurable experience rather than a difficult, frustrating one. Yeah, I really loved it. I really <laughs> did. I really, I mean, I, you know, I, it's, I, it really was just, um, it wasn't all, 
you know, didn't just flow for me. Like I say, I don't write that way. I took a, I know at one point I took a hundred page wrong turn where it was just, I was, and, I, and it was flowing then. <laughs> but, you know, it was again that feeling most and I looked up and I said, what am I doing? You know, this is, this is, it, you know, what it was is, it, well, it wasn't my voice. Yeah. And I think what sometimes happens is some something um, comes along, and it's like, well, I can do that because it's someone else's voice that I've I've read and and enjoy. And I was just like, I had a um, I had to stop a hundred pages. Ew. So, but on the same time, it was so fun. I just loved it. It was just, it was so wonderful. And it's just this. I was like, well, nobody told me <laughs> the secret of having, you know, these imaginary friends. And and I really still feel as though I had a profound relationship um, with these characters, you know. And it's a really beautiful, it's actually a really beautiful experience to write and not to just succeed at writing. I mean, not just like, oh, and it got published, which is also great. But it was, you know, it was different from all the other times when I was trying because I think, again, when I was trying all those other novels, it was coming it, it was coming from a um, well, you know, from desire and intention and striving and um, and working it and working it. And this time, it really was from you know finding it and revealing it and and having a relationship with with it. And it was wonderful. I I'm a wonderful solitude. I just think. Maybe we don't talk about that enough. Yeah. That you know, it's just actually the experience of writing a novel can be very profound. At least I felt so. It was well, great. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I, I wonder if part of what might have happened here is that you discovered a group of characters that you just wanted to hang out with, because that's the feeling. The feeling to me that comes off the page is that you're having fun with these characters. You you kind of like them. You kind of like Hi. the way they interact. Um, you you bring the two old friends on stage exactly when they want to. And by the way, I say on stage because I keep sort of remembering this novel almost as though it's a play. You could almost do this as a one-room drama. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that because I didn't write it that way or think of it that way. But I uh, but when I look at it now, I think because they bear they mostly stay on stage. Yeah. I mean, they they don't leave that house very far you know it's mostly the garden and the house hmm. for the and i could see it as a, a play actually uh, something and something else you know something else gary um i picked up in your review which i thought was really very clever of you as you said it it's little bits of it reminded you a little bit of the um peter straub chowder society in um ghost story mm -hmm. right and I thought that was very, I was like, wow, you know, because I've read that book about three times. And I think what? at least three, ghost story, yeah, at least three times. And when you, when I read that in the review, I thought, you know, that's funny, because I, I think that might be in there a little bit. And I thought it was very astute for you to pick up on that. Peter will be so proud to hear that, because he admires your work a great deal, as you know. But the, for people who don't remember the plot of ghost story, it consists of, Three or four old men, I forget, 
who are remembering an awful event from their from their childhood, not from their childhood, but from the young young adulthood, which has haunted each of them in different ways over the decades. And there's it, it's it's not that similar, but you do have three old women who share a horrible secret from the past, and that's all we should say because. That, that, that would be a reveal. This is one of the few novels where I've really wanted to avoid the spoiler. Uh, and there, I think there is one in it. I think you could possibly mess this up by saying too much in a review. Okay. That's interesting because when you describe Ghost Story that way, I'm like, yeah, it's so much. I mean, it's total, they're totally different novels. But I could, I could definitely see that that was some influence, you know, because that's the way you describe it's true. Speaking of influences, and you and I have talked about this, but who do you read or who did you read? You said you read that story three times. Once you and I were talking about both having read The Once and Future King as kids, I remember. Oh, uh, love T-H-Y. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I loved, um, I went through a period of reading the Arthurian legends. Um, but like, you mean like, who, who, well, it's interesting because an, another thing that Tor asked me to do is they have some little column where writers mm-hmm. can write about the books, you know, they loved and influenced. And I, I, that I have something coming up on that, but I, um, the book, I, you know, I read Sophie's choice. Like I read mm-hmm. Sophie's choice over and over and over again. And, um, that's not the kind of story I think people, people thought I would say, you know, if I tell people, well, this is what I read and this is what I write. Sometimes there's, you know, a little bit of a, a disconnect. But I did read, when you mentioned Graham Joyce, I loved um, some kind of fairy tale. Brilliant. I loved that. I love that. And of course, I adore, you know, Chris Barzak's work so mm-hmm. much. And um, I read Sophia Samatar's beautiful novel that Thank everybody you. should read, A Stranger in a Laundria. But as far you know, when I look at, um, I read all over the place. You know, I go to, I go, I like, you know, I like, I was, once in a while I'll read those mysteries that they call cozy mysteries, mm-hmm. where it's in, you know, a little bed and breakfast and there's, you know, a dead body and there's also cupcake recipes. And that's really what these books are like. And that's, that's not a, I mean, that's how they're promoted. That's what they're doing. And what attracts me to that kind of stuff is, I I think what attracts me to it is different from what attracts other people to it. But I like how odd that juxtaposition is. <laughs> so I really do. Um, but I'm trying to think like exact influences. I know I've seen some. Well, we're not necessarily even talking about influences, just things that you've liked. I mean... Uh, the, the the English village mysteries, um, there there are a lot of different kinds of them, I guess. I, I used to love, um, for example, reading Dorothy Sayers because there's a really dark edge to those. Some of those murders are really gruesome. Yeah. And one of the things I was wondering about when I was reading The Mothers of Vorisville, is that how you pronounce it, is how much yeah. living in yeah. Cedarburg affects your writing. <laughs> You do a lot of villages. There are villages. There's a there's a village in um, in the memory garden. There's clearly a village of uh, of odd mothers in this one, uh, and they all there there's a kind of 
a Midwestern feel to it, I guess, an almost Bradbury-esque feel in the very early Bradbury when he was also willing to write dark. Yeah, yeah. I also really do like Bradbury. I, um, you know, I grew up in a really small town. When I was growing up, the the population sign was 710. And um, then, you know, I left as soon as I was 18. <laughs> and as soon as I was 18, I went to California. And then I was in upstate New York. I moved back to Wisconsin um, about seven years ago. You know, so I... I and I now live in a, a small city, very small, villagey kind of place, but more than 710, like 21,000, I think. Um, and I think it affects my writing a lot. You know, even though I was away for so, so long, coming back after having been away for so long, um, I realize how much the Midwestern sensibility is in my writing and how much, you know, that sort of the sense of the Midwestern Gothic and how there is. I mean, I live in this little city that's like candy shops and, um, a you know, the kind of park where the kids are out there in their baseball uniforms. And, you know, we all walk down to watch the fireworks for 4th of July and there's a little stream running through and um, the park and there's um, and then there, you know, is the heroin epidemic at the high school. And there's a, there's um, this sort of this a lot of the heritage here a lot of people come from a, a german background and there's the the german festivals and there's the there's a lot of festivals um and there's you know way too much drinking uh, and and people defend the right to do it you know and they and then they wonder why they have the problem with the drugs or the drinking and with the younger kids and they still do and there's always a sense here of of there's something in the landscape, you know, because again, I mean, Peter Straub was from here, right, in mm -hmm. Milwaukee, mm -hmm. and I think there's something about the sense of sky and the, and the space, and then there's this this restless spirit that people have, um, and yet they're determined, you know, not to do anything about it. You know, there's a kind of stoic attitude, and then. You know, and then the nice lady down the street makes homemade bread and brings it to me. So there's just this really odd combination. And it wasn't until I moved back here and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is why I write the way I write. Where it is a combination of sort of um, sweet and mm -hmm. then and then these little dark corners and and. For the first time in my life, you know, I'm living, I'm living in the same place. I think I've lived here like seven, seven, eight years now in a row. And, and it's also the place I had grown up in. And I'm beginning to really, I get pretty restless myself, pretty restless. But I also enjoy sort of knowing the stories, you know, like you, you it's so fun living in a place where it's like you you know, I know, you know, you kind of get to know each other's stories without even really knowing the person that well. But it's just because, and the places become marked, you know, it's like, oh, I've lived here long enough to remember. Well, that's, you know, I know that, I know that. 
that nice old lady who's bringing me bread lives alone now. But, you know, when I first moved here, her husband lived with her in that house. And I, I like seeing the, the generational ghosts. Mm. Of, of living in a place for a long time. Well, seven years. <laughs> <laughs> there is a weirdness in Wisconsin. I mean, August Durleth also lived there and wrote those Lovecraft stories yeah. there. And, and you must have seen this bizarre book of photographs called Wisconsin Death Trip. I just got it in Madison um, this just a few months ago. Yes, it's amazing. It's an astonishing yeah. book. Yeah, isn't it a great? It's wants you to describe it. I don't know how to describe it. There was this epidemic of madness in rural Wisconsin, and <laughs> suicides and murders and infanticides and all sorts of things. I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember the name of the town. Um, well, well, I don't remember the name of the town either. It's in the other room, but it's you know it's all black and white photographs, so and then it's the all these. Yeah. The little little um, clips from the articles about um, the news stories of, which I don't I don't know that it was an epidemic of madness. I just think it was just um, it, it was just that people have always been strange, and life has been always been you know beautiful and also really hard, and there and this is a time where they would report it in ways that in a way where, you know, it's kind of almost like naive. Um, uh, well, definitely was naive and no language for some of the things that were happening with mental illness. And, yeah. and it's like, there's one, I remember one, it's some woman walking around with a dead baby. This is in the newspaper. And, and, and then she just kind of walked through the downtown with her dead baby. You know, it's, it's horrible. Um, and, and it's really uh, vulnerable too. So yeah, yeah, I kind of I think there's maybe some material in that book for me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the sort of bittersweet midwestern gothic kind of space is where you're going to continue working? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I I I think I might like move the ocean to the Midwest, you know. But people who know where I am and where I've come from are, are going to be able to probably see the Midwest in my work. I do think there's a little bit of, because um, I lived in, in upstate New York and I, I think there's a little bit of East coast sensibility and there's such great stories around water and the ocean. So I could see that, you know, if you, yeah. I mm. could see that happening, but definitely Gothic. I mean, that was one thing that I really enjoyed exploring in my MFA and um, came to an understanding of, you know, basically, I think, I think that's a big influence in my work. Or, but mostly, if you say gothic, people get an image that isn't what I mean at all. Yeah, not the Adams family. No, not the Adams family, and not the Moors, and not the, you mm. know. But it is that combination of this sort of um, coming from this the darkest um, things that in places of being human and mm. with this juxtaposed with this reach that's going to be unattainable. Um, and a lot of times there's a, you know, a spiritual element to that, 
which so in the gothic fiction of old you know is like the churches and the priests and the you know yeah. i think people gotten really stuck on that definition but when i look at my work i think a lot of it has could be called gothic and i think a lot of it has um, at least that gothic element yeah. of that odd juxtaposition i think you're right that the word's been devalued over the years and i think that a lot of, I mean, we've talked about Peter Straub and him. He has no trouble with that term at all. And Joyce Carol Oates has written what we would call gothic novels yeah. in terms of the human beings in them. And yeah. I don't, I don't see the novels that are set in gothic, but her contemporary upstate New York novels have that feeling. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's just one of those words, It's and it's a shame because um, there's a, there's a, a lot of opportunity for beauty, I think, in this kind of work. And I think there's, um, it's, it's a shame that people feel, feel that, oh, I'm kind of losing track of what I'm saying. I think what people, really, is if, if you, if you put a modifier in front of Gothic, it's okay. Everybody knows that Southern Gothic can be everybody from Flannery O'Connor to Shirley yeah. and Faulkner. So what you and other writers from the Midwest need to do is to define Midwestern Gothic as being Midwestern as valid. Gothic. Midwestern Gothic. Well, there is, is there is a form. little literary magazine called Midwestern Gothic right now. Okay. I don't know how little it is, but it, there's a it's a Midwestern Gothic magazine, and there is a Midwestern Gothic sensibility for sure. Um, I always say, you know, yeah, we have we've had our share of serial killers, and I think that there's. It's interesting because you're right, Gary. Because the the Southern Gothic is, um, if people say that, it's like uh, people kind of know what you're talking about. Like but Midwestern Gothic isn't hasn't really reached that. And it, you know, it's it, I don't know why it has to have the location on it anyway. People have to, you know, people just have to like read stuff and get over the classifications and even though you know when you ask me my influences I become completely blank and like and I really do read a lot of things but I um but I think people just people need to read and they need to search through the shelves and um not get so hung up on all these terms it's it's a shame because it's really um, detracted from what we can do with language. Oh, I think it has. I think that's absolutely true. I, and, and by the way, when 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 I ask you what you like to read, that's not necessarily the same thing as asking you your influences. You, you, you you're perfectly you have a perfect right to read anything you want to that has no influence on you whatsoever. <laughs> oh yeah, I know you're right. Yeah yeah, definitely. <laughs> I guess one question I wanted to ask, had wanted to ask earlier in the conversation, and we answered it in many ways, but it still seems germane to have touched on it in the context of our podcast, is back in the day when you decided to write as M. Rickert, was there a gender reason for it? Well, you know, I there there was I there was a yes, there was a gender reason, but it was also um, in in that I just wanted to not exist. I wanted this. I mean, I. I mean, I like being alive, and but I wanted to be to disappear in into the. And I wanted the story to be able to stand on its own voice and not have an easy 
door to forget to you know open up and look and remember that it's a fiction so um because when I was younger I used to read stories and then I'd look at the name and try to figure out you know stuff about the person and I wanted that there to be as little opportunity for that as possible I wanted to um so in that way but I did not, and I have to say that's part of the Mary, too, because I, I did not know that there was this whole stuff about, you know, male writers, and yeah. and, and I didn't know about all of that. And um, when, I did, when I did decide, you know, okay, yeah, let's just go with Mary Rickard now, I was like, you know, I, I kind of enjoy um, having, I don't like, I, I did not like it when people thought I was in some way trying to hide you know that I was a woman yeah Um, I I wouldn't have taken it that way but I could have understood if you'd felt that there was a greater chance that your work would be taken at at its own value if it wasn't somehow I don't know there's a feeling that says that people will disregard fiction by women or work by women because it's by women and maybe by not making that less obvious, you remove that barrier to your work being received. Well, I think that um, I think it is. I don't understand how it keeps happening, but I think it's really clear that it does keep happening. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I think when people are doing the. Um, you know, they do these little reports and everything, and it's like, well, you know, you just look at the numbers, and it's clear that something's going on that mm-hmm. um, shouldn't be going on for, for women authors. But I was completely ignorant of that stuff when I made that choice. You know, I was completely ignorant of it. Um, so really, in a way, you know, it's it, it's interesting for me, and I probably can't comment on it too much because I'm so early in the experience, but this is my first publishing experience where I'm being published to an audience not familiar with my work or readership uh, who now are coming and and know that I'm a woman. Yeah. Whereas before with the M thing... Um, you know, I still, I mean, I actually kind of laid into the that experience. I would once in a while get, you know, a dear Mike kind of, <laughs> um, uh, and and or were, you know, it was just kind of assumed. But you know, it's so I know it's happening, and uh, that there is this that's this wall about woman writers and I, but it's, you know, it's one of those things I was thinking about this today where there's like there, if you look at each individual, it's like, well, it's not that person. It's not that person. It's not that person. Cause, but then, but then you put this, com, you know, whatever community together and something is going horribly wrong. And it's, it's, it's really hard to figure out where it's happening and how to fix it. Um, but, you know, I just think people can, being aware of it helps. Yeah. And I think that readers um, making an attempt to check that in their own, own, I don't understand it though, because I don't understand it. Because, you know, you had mentioned too, Gary, about the source books being a, um, 
um, you know, targeting woman readers. And that's one of the things that's, you know, really actually attractive to me sure. because it's like, you know, it's not only is it, and it's run, it's the, I'd like to say this, it's the largest woman owned trade publisher in North America. And the woman mm-hmm. who started it, um, started it, you know, she was a, I can't remember her name. I'm sorry to say, but the, she was the founder. She cashed in her, her 401k went um, as an advertising person uh, and she started it in her spare bedroom and she built it up. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the ways to handle some of this problem, you know, is to start, is to start celebrating the women who are um, doing it and, and saying, you know, well, we're just going to target the women readers because they're out there and they're so engaged. I mean, it's kind of, it's really interesting to me because one of the ways my book is being tagged is women's fiction. And now I'm discovering there's there's this whole, I had this whole world I didn't know about of, you know, women bloggers. Well, I mean, I knew there were women bloggers, but, you know, completely focusing on reviewing woman's fiction that's actually very cool it's very dynamic and you know who else has a book coming out i love his work and um the snow child or the oh uh glenn hirschberg yes he has a novel coming out from tor in in um i think about a week or so and i don't actually remember the title of the novel but i love his work and why am I mentioning him? Women's fiction? Well, we're talking about women writers, and that's uh, blogging about well, women's fiction. I know. I was talking about women's fiction. And women Is this the motherless and... child? Yes. Yes. But I don't, you know what? I can't even remember where I was okay. going with that. But anyway, he has a great book coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already yet, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, and not knowing that, I mean, one of the things about women's fiction, uh, as, as I, um, maybe this is where you were going, that women's fiction is not necessarily just fiction by women, but fiction of interest to women, perhaps. Oh, you know, that's where I was going, because there's another site, Romantic Times, I think it's called. They, you know, mm-hmm. they view everything. And... Um, and then, but you know, it's it's romantic times. So I think I think people have to really check. You know that this literary bigotry thing can go all different directions, um, because that's actually a very dynamic site, and they mm-hmm. they are reading all kinds of writing and just res- just responding to it without prejudice. And, and the they had just given him a very lovely review. So that's where I was I'll, going I'll, with. I'll, I'll at this uh, C2E2, the uh, comic entertainment you know convention here in Chicago last week, and was on a panel with John Scalzi, who told me he gets very good treatment from Romantic Times as well. Uh, so yeah. It, it occurred to me, I guess they do read more than what... Those of us who don't read romance probably have as many biases about romance as people who don't read science fiction have about science fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the... I mean, I really think... Um, that the science fiction and fantasy community uh, has to consider what it does uh, to contribute to this, you know, 
I keep calling it literary bigotry, but that's what it is. You know, it's it goes both ways. It's it's something that I think many of us writing within the community have experienced, and you know, and then and then the same people will turn around and go like, oh, I. I, I would never read that, which is, people can have discretion, but to me, the way I define the literary bigotry is if you, if you say, um, I never read this because, well, okay, that's literary bigotry, because you, exactly. you cannot so comment is, on it. <laughs> you cannot comment on it because you never read it. So you can just, you, if you can say, you know, oh, I haven't read that, that's fine. But if you say, if you indict it based on on what you've heard or, and based on what you've seen just by looking at covers, you know, you're, you're, you're a literary bigot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one of the things, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, you were sorry. Just one last comment, because you were talking about the, the advantages of the name M. Rickert in that it was in some ways a blank. It was some something that people had to read the story for the story. I think what you would have loved, Mary, uh, and this is where I'm pulling the age card on both of you, because you, you young folks aren't old enough to remember this, but up until about, I'm going to say 30 years ago, the New Yorker never had a table of contents. Uh, you would begin reading the New Yorker, and you would turn the pages, and there would be a title, and you'd start reading it, and after a couple of paragraphs, you'd realize it's a work of fiction. But unless you were going to flip all the way to the back, the author's name appeared at the end of the story. You didn't know what you were reading by until you finished the story. That's how Shirley Jackson's New Yorker stories appeared. That's how Donald Barton's oh. stories appeared. And you couldn't play the literary snob game by saying, I'm not going to read that because I don't like that writer. Yeah. You either you put faith in the magazine. You put faith in, this is the New Yorker, and I think they publish good stuff. And you'd get your way through it. But at some point, there must have been just absolutely stunned responses, like when the lottery appeared, for example. Yeah. With, what What was that? And who is this? Wasn't that, when, didn't they say people, yeah, I love Shirley Jackson, yeah, I love her, but didn't they say that um, people actually were, like, trying to find out where that town was and stuff? I think I heard. that town. It's insane. Let's oh, take the kids people to death. I mean, <laughs> but I love that way of formatting it. I think that's yeah, really cool. Yeah. But you have to admit, fantasy and science fiction did some, did a good job with presenting your fiction to the world because that's where I first encountered it, I believe. Oh my gosh, yeah. I feel like, um, well, I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's, I mean, that's another thing. I was working on short stories, getting them rejected for years and years and years. And the first one that um, Gordon Van Gelder accepted had been rejected for years. You know, I was, I was actually <laughs> in, in sort of a dramatic move. I was the the day I got that acceptance letter in the mail, I had called in sick to the coffee shop I was working at, and just because I was just so like miserable. I was, what am I doing? What am I doing, you know, with, with my life? And I thought I was really on the right track here, but I had years of rejections. So it's, it was wonderful to finally find a place where, um, where I could get published and read. And I appreciate it a lot. Oh, he's, he's a very good editor and he's 
probably deserves more recognition than he gets for for that sort of thing. But didn't you tell me once that you that some of the people who've been rejecting the stories had been saying you need to fix this fantastic thing in it because you know it's it's too fantastic and and Gordon was the first one who told you to go with it. I don't remember that story. It was a long time ago that we were talking about that. Yeah. He really understood the stories for what they were. He did. And they were being rejected because people didn't get what the core of the story was. Um, Yeah. So so I, I I think Gordon is may at some point be remembered as one of the great editors in our field. And I don't think he gets a lot of credit for that at the moment. Yeah, he's he's a very um, he's a personal hero for me. You know, I was like I and I'm ashamed to say. I mean, I think maybe this, um, but I guess I'll just admit it. You know, I'm pretty sure the story I submitted had a lot of spelling errors because I I do remember. <laughs> and I you know, and the thing is, is and so that I get uncomfortable when um uh, you know, people kind of like mock the submissions they get. You know, because everybody's really trying hard and I thought I was spelling these things right you know I thought I was <laughs> and it was because I the reason I remember it so clearly is then I got the galley copy of the story and I was supposed to check and I'm like oh man he spelled all these words wrong <laughs> and then I looked and I was like oh no I spelled all of them wrong and he looked right you know I'm I'm I have to say I'm pretty sure in case anyone's out there that you know Gordon Van Gelder does not really want you to send stories with a lot of bad spells. <laughs> no, I'm sure he doesn't. <laughs> I, I just really have always been so grateful that, you know, I sent some story in. It was sitting in a slush pile. It probably wasn't the right presentation. Um, it definitely had spelling mistakes. It was strange, strange little story. You know, and he read it. And he read it again. And... Um, you know, that kind of attention, it's the same thing um, I say to you too, Jonathan, with you asking me to write a witch's story. You know, you just you just never know when um, doing your work as an editor or as a critic, you know, you say the thing or you, or you give the thing that, that creates an author's um, dream come true. And I I really appreciate it because I know that people have to be really present and in, and to what's happening to respond um, yeah. and not be, not be asleep and that kind of thing can make all the difference in someone's life and it made all the difference in mine. What's well, wonderful it's re- that it's resulted in the kind of book that it has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I- wonderful <laughs> well on that note we might perhaps draw the podcast to a close we try and contain it in an hour of conversation and we've probably wandered a little bit a bit over but i've no doubt we'll pick it up again at some other point in the future okay thank you thank you so much for joining us it's been a great pleasure thank you very much i hope i didn't do too many ums but i think i did <laughs> no 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 more than we do the great thing about a podcast, Mary, is that you didn't misspell any words. Yay! <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Got lost in a few sentences, but the words are there. So do we all. Yeah. All right, thanks. Well, on that cheery note, until we get to talk again, 
Um, we are, well, Mary, we'll see you sort of some other time on a, on a future podcast and maybe at a world fantasy or somewhere like that in the future. I hope. And Gary, I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Until then. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.